Hey everyone, I'm Michelle Spillane, one of the worship leaders here at Sanctus Church, and you're listening to the Sanctus Church Podcast. Our mission here at Sanctus is to glorify God by enabling people of all ages to become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for the message today. Hey Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us this morning. No matter where you are in the world, maybe you're at a physical location on our online site, or maybe you're visiting from another community or checking us out. I used this illustration when we talked about spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts a few years ago. I want to bring it back in this context too. Imagine, I know some of you live in parts of the world where there isn't a ton of snow, but sometimes we get a lot of snow here. Imagine we had like five feet of snow drop in a night, which would be like chaos. All right, imagine that took place, and then for the last half hour of that snow moment, it rained. How heavy and gross would that snow be? And imagine you came out and there's the driveway and you don't have anything but your own hands, not even gloves. And you had to start clearing away your whole driveway with your bare hands. Frostbite, you'd say it's impossible. I can't do it. It's too big. It's, too, it's just too much. Even if you were given gloves, you'd be like, too much. Even if I gave a shovel to you, you'd be like, wow, this is going to take so long. This is going to be really hard. I can do it. But man, it's just going to wipe me out. And then suddenly there's this thing called a snowblower. Someone walks alongside and gives you a snowblower. And if it's a good one, of course, it's got gas. It's gas powered. And it's a large one. What happens? It literally just cuts through that snow and that wet and that grossness and even removes it from you. It's the difference maker. And you don't even exert your own full strength when you use a snowblower. You're working in tandem with it to deal with this massive task in front of you. Okay, that's the image I want in front of you, in your mind as I'm speaking today. Because we're going to be talking about how to live a successful or victorious Christian life, but not in your own power. And this is the mistake, by the way, tons of us keep making. So welcome to the book of Romans again. If you've got a Bible, virtual, physical, turn to Romans 7. I'm so glad that chapter 7 is in the book of Romans because here we get this picture of a mature, God-loving, but struggling Christian. It's personal, it's going to be raw, emotional, honest, powerful. It's basically lived out experience and Paul talks about it in public. Now never forget who Paul is or was meets Jesus in a vision, commissioned to plant churches across the whole Roman Empire, writes two-thirds of the New Testament, understood grace more than most of us, lost almost everyone that he loved when he became a follower of Jesus, had beaten, been shipwrecked, had done amazing miracles, had been to the third heaven in a vision, and yet he's going to say, and I still struggle all the time. He keeps falling back into the trap of using his own strength to do the Christian life thing. Again, he talked to Jesus, had more theology, passion, sacrifice, understanding, vision, probably than any of us. And yet he's going to say, I struggle. And this is really good news for the rest of us. We think mature and strong on fire Christians are always joy-filled and always excited and full of joy 24-7, always gifted, ready to take the next hill and do the next amazing thing for God. And that sets us up for failure. Presumptions and wrong expectations always bring death, not life, never clarity. But truth brings life. So chapter 6, we're going to start there first. We're going to start with how God deals with humanity's sin. Here's a great summary. Romans 6.14, sin shall not be your master, 
because you are not under law, you're under grace. Sin's no longer going to be your master. God says, I'm going to break in. I'm going to break the power of sin. I'm going to forgive all the sins, plural, you have done in your life, but I'm also going to remove the DNA issue, the passed on original sin that's generationally passed down since Adam and Eve to all human beings that enslaves us to sin and gives us the ability not not to sin. Now notice what he says. Sin will no longer be your master because you are not under the law. Okay, the law, it seems, the Ten Commandments plus, doesn't seem to be the answer either. Okay, let me just do a real quick summary of, like the Ten Commandments, what does the law do for us? Now, this is really, really important. If you're checking out the Christian faith or you're a follower of Jesus, to get this is to get a lot of the ballgame. All right, the law does four things. It has four job descriptions. It has four rules. And we've learned some of them as we've been going through Romans. And Paul's going to bring them all up again today. So first of all, the law shows us who God is. It reveals his nature. Like I said last week, God didn't wake up one day and say, I don't like murder, lying, stealing, just because I don't like them. See, the Ten Commandments are not laws separated from God. They come, they stem from his nature, their divine DNA. When you see the Ten Commandments, you're seeing the character of God himself. He says no to murder because he's a life-giving God. He hates stealing because he's a generous, gift-giving God. He hates adultery because he is a covenant-keeping God. He rejects sort of idolatry because he is truth. J.I. Packer, the really famous Anglican evangelical theologian, said God's law expresses his character. It reflects his own behavior. It alerts us to what he loves in us and what he hates to see in us. It's a recipe for holiness, consecrated conformity to God, which is his true image. Okay, so role one, it sort of displays who God is. Role two, Romans 3.20, we read this a few weeks ago. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become aware, conscious of our sin. No one gets saved by obeying the law because we actually can't keep it consistently or perfectly. Now, in the Jewish worldview 2,000 years ago, a lot of Orthodox Jewish people thought that they were saved just by literally having the law. I, I have it. Or I've done some of it. But see, you cannot be saved by having the law knowing about the law, memorizing the law, or even obeying the law, because you're never saved by what you do or what you have. But the law does do one thing. The law actually helps human beings know what sin is, what separation is, our need for an external savior. We become aware of sin. It's where God, our creator, defines trespass, the place we're not allowed to go. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, <coughs> said this, the principal point of the law in true Christian theology is to make people not better, but worse. That is to say, to show them their sin so human beings will be humbled, terrified, bru terrified bruised, and broken. And by this means be driven to seek the comfort and come to, so, to that so blessed Christ. So we've already learned this, Romans 5.20. The law was brought in so trespass might increase. So let me just do this. One... The law reveals who God is. Two, the law defines sin. Three, weirdly enough, it seems that the law also helps us increase our sin. Okay, we're going to talk about that more in a moment. Now today, when Paul's talking about his own story, he's going to gather up these three points and then add another one, and he's going to address them all directly. Everything he's going to say today is around the law, us, grace, and ability. He says in Romans 7.1, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, 
for I'm speaking to those that know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. All of us, Paul says, are under the power, under the authority of the Ten Commandments as long as we live. Now, whether we've got the written version, the literal Ten Commandments, or we learned this earlier in the series, or under natural law, which God has placed in nature and in people's souls, we're under the law. Now, at this point, this should bring some confession, but also confusion and pain and despair. Let me just read the Ten Commandments for you. When's the last time you just read them? And honestly ask yourself, how am I doing as I hear these? Here's, here's it from the message. No other gods, only me, God says. No carved gods of any shape, size, form, anything, whatever. Whether things that fly or walk or swim, don't bow down to them, don't serve them, because I am God, your God. No using uh, the name of God, your God, in curses or silly banter. God will not put up with the irreverent use of his name. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Work six days. Do everything you need to do on those days. On the seventh day is a Sabbath day to God, your God. Honor your mom and dad so you'll live long in the land that God, your God, is giving you. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying about your neighbor, no lusting after your neighbor's house or wife or servant or maid or ox or donkey. Don't set your heart on anything that is your neighbor's, and I'll add, and is not yours. Wow. And then, of course, if you read Jesus, it gets worse because Jesus says adultery also is if you look at someone lustfully, not just actually go sleep with them. And he says, oh, murder isn't just literally murder, but it's when you have uncontrolled anger against people. See, we've broken these laws again and again and again and again and again. And Paul says, and you're under the authority of this until you die. But then suddenly Paul gives hope and he uses an everyday example from his own time to sort of show us the good news. He talks about first century marriage. This is how it reads in Romans 7, 2. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. If her husband dies, she's released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if the man dies, she's released from the law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. Now, under Roman law and also Jewish law, a woman was bound to her husband for life. Now, we're not addressing it, nor is the point here, the conversation about divorce and remarriage and adultery. The point here is a husband, a wife, and the law regulates behavior. Paul is pointing out the power of the law, the power of covenant, the power of agreement. So I love when one person said, Paul simply wants to show us that a death of something can bring freedom from the law and hints that such freedom can lead to a new relationship. Okay. So, brothers and sisters, verse 4. You also died, there it is, to the law through the body of Jesus, the Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Our marriage contract, our marriage covenant, our ownership, our life-sucking burden to and under trying to live the Ten Commandments perfectly was dissolved when suddenly we identified with the death of Jesus Christ. When we became Christians, we entered into his death and resurrection. And as a result, we're now married to him, not the law. No salvation through law anymore, just him. This shows us our freedom. Now, out of this new freedom that we, uh, that we walk in, we're supposed to do good works. So don't miss this. This is really, really, really important. The law takes on a new role after you meet Jesus. 
after you have grace, after you're saved by Jesus' work alone and his love alone, the fourth role of the law shows up. We now obey, obey the law as acts of love, not duty, not for salvation. We Practical works flow out of our love relationship with Jesus. In other words, we don't don't lie to get saved. We choose not to lie because we love Jesus more and want to be like Jesus. Do you see the difference? You don't obey the law to get in. You're already in, so you obey the law because you're full of love. In other words, the law is like a multifaceted diamond. That is all different ways that it's used depending on where you are in the journey. Now, after that small summary, Paul unpacks his own journey and actually our own journey also. First, he reminds us of our time before Jesus when we were lost. Whether you're good or bad, whether you're super spiritual or religious or atheistic or agnostic, he says we're empty, depraved, and we're involved in spiritual death. He basically summarizes everything we've talked about. And he says it in verse 5. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so they bore the fruit for death. We died. But then he says you became a Christian. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law, so now we serve, here it is, in a new way, by or of the Holy Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Okay, ready? We now serve, we now live in a power that's not our own. This is where the snowblower shows up, the Holy Spirit. Now, all of chapter 8, by the way, is going to outline this amazing reality. Uh, Chapter 7 is a setup for the next two weeks. They're going to be pretty incredible. But this is the point. We now have a power that we work in tandem with to actually be like God through Christ. Not our power, not the law's power, the Spirit's power. So in the first six verses, we see all of human history and our relationship with God or our lack of it. It's really a good summary of Romans 1 through 6. We lived before the law under sin, then under the law, which shows us how lost we really were. And then when we tried to obey the law, we're going to talk about this in a minute, actually we sinned more. And now in Jesus, we're set free from the law and we're given this new supernatural power to live a life that we cannot live, but God lives in and through us. Now, Paul knows, remember, he's an Orthodox Jew himself, that many of his Jewish readers and fellow rabbis are going to get very, very upset at this point and miss what he's saying. They're going to start believing that Paul is saying that the Ten Commandments or the whole Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi is evil or bad or opposes God. He's going to go, no, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law is good, but it serves a certain purpose. Without the law, we wouldn't know who the character, what the character of God was. If we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know what sin is. And without the law, we wouldn't even know we'd need a Savior who's external to help us. Jesus, who's God in flesh. I love years ago when I discovered this illustration. Not long ago, this person writes, it's older now. Most people didn't find out about their cancer until it was too late. The first symptom usually led to bad news from the doctor, and then it was done. Then someone invented this thing called the MRI, a marvelous machine that quickly and usually accurately probes a patient's flesh and yields detailed internal images of their body. Now, a trained eye can examine the image and locate cancerous tumors long before the patient has any symptoms. Now, if the MRI leads to a diagnosis of cancer, the patient would be foolish to blame the machine for their illness. If anything, they should be thankful that his problem or her problem was discovered 
early enough to be treated. In essence, Paul is saying, I did not know that I was dying from the disease of sin until the law revealed my terminal condition. And more than that, the law showed me that I loved my disease and I'd do anything to keep it. I was like a living dead man. By pointing out my problem, the law demonstrated I was living under a death sentence. So Paul's like, no, no, the law is so important, so needed, so good. But he's not done yet. He unpacks it further. He goes back to the actual Ten Commandments and he chooses to talk about how even though it's good, it can be hijacked. Now, he's going to use, out of Exodus 20, out of the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, he's going to talk about one of the laws. You shall not covet. Now, I just want you to think about this. From jokes, to confessions, to blogs, <coughs> to TikTok, to dinners, to coffees with other people, we hear people covet all the time. I'm too fat, and if I just was thin. I'm too thin if I had more muscle. I wish my sexual parts were different. I need more muscles. I need a different hair color. I need more hair, less hair. If I was taller, if I was smaller, if I was born into that family, into that culture, in that town, I just need a better purse. I need more money. I need a bigger house. I need a new car. If I could be 13 again, oh, I wish I was 30 right now. If I was 60 or 26, then I'd feel better or would be better. Things would be perfect. Human beings, we covet all the time our neighbor stuff, and, and social media, oh my goodness, especially like Instagram, has made us covet even more. Have you thought, by the way, about this? Maybe you haven't. Covet, coveting leads to all the other sins. If you covet more, you steal. If you covet, then you lie. If you covet, you end up murdering. If you covet, you give it, get into idolatry. Basically, coveting is the gas in the car to trespass. Coveting, of course, leads you to hurt yourself, not to love your, not to love your neighbor and to leave God out of the picture. Who needs daily bread when you can steal it or just take it? So this is what he says. I would have not known what coveting really was, verse 7, if the law had not said, do not covet. Uh, But then he says there's a problem. But sin seized the opportunity afforded by the commandment to produce in me every kind of coveting. From apart from the law, sin was dead. Okay, you're like, I'm totally confused. What's Paul saying? This is really good. I shared this a few weeks ago. If you see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass, what are you tempted to do? I'm going to walk on the grass. Why? No one has the right to tell me what to do. Right? When you see with little kids, I need a cookie after dinner. No, we're not doing cookies. The immediate thing inside of us is, I covet that cookie. I want that. I deserve that cookie. When you're driving on the highway, we call it the 401 or the 407 here, you're like, oh, it's 100. I'm determined to go 120. It's the flow of traffic. It is. But I'm just going to do it. Uh, years ago, there was an illustration like this that I've, it's still been one of my favorites. Uh, one of the first high-rises that was built in Texas, in Galveston, uh, was right on the Gulf. Now, it was so close to the water, the owners worried that people would start fishing uh, from their guest balconies. And high winds, of course, and they used, of course, large lead sinkers. So they were concerned because the restaurant was on the first floor and was basically all glass. So they were like, this is going to be a bad combination. People are going to fish right out of their rooms. The lead sinkers are going to hit the glass and smash it. So what do they do? They put up a sign. They create a law. Absolutely no fishing from the balcony. What happened? You can guess it. Guests in the first story restaurant dined to the frequent smacking of lead weights against the plate glass windows, and literally sometimes the glass cracked. Finally, the people managing the hotel realized they had made a bad decision, and suddenly they removed all the signs from within the guest room saying, 
do not fish from the balcony, and everyone stopped fishing from the balcony because they didn't think about it. We can all relate to this. We know what is wrong, and we even end up wanting to do it just because we want to do it. St. Augustine, one of the most important books written actually in Western history, is his book called The Confessions. And he talks openly about his life. And here's this little section that brings it home. He says, there was a pear tree near our vineyard, and it was full of fruit one day. One stormy night, we, as he calls himself, a rascally youth, so a little punk teenager, he would say, set out to rob the tree and carry the spoils away. So we took a large load of pears, not even to eat themselves, even though, of course, we did it. We just wanted to throw them to the pigs. Now, they were nice pears, he writes, but they weren't the best pears. I had better pears at home. Now, this is what he writes. It was not the pears that my wretched soul coveted after. I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was a feast of sin and that I enjoyed it to the full. What was it that I loved in the theft? The desire to steal was awakened simply because I was told you may not steal. So here's Paul's point. The law shows us our sin. That's good. The law shows us our need for a savior. That's good. But then sin hijacks the moment and makes us sin more. He says in verse 9, Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually kept bringing me death. So the law gives life, it reflects who God is, but if you do not follow it perfectly, it will lead you to the opposite. It's hijacked. And this is how he says it. Read, I'll just read it slowly. For sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, yep, and the commandment is holy, yep, it's righteous and good. Did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it, was, it used what was good to bring my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. Now, the word deceived here, you see it earlier, is the same word used when Satan deceives Eve. One person just brings it home like this. The villain in the story is sin. Sin seizes the opportunity afforded to it when the law showed me what was right and what was wrong without supplying, everyone ready? The power to do the former and avoid the latter. Sin forced me against my better judgment to do what the law showed me to be wrong. And thus made me condemned and worthy of death. <laughs> the law reveals something, but there's no power behind it. So then Paul, after all of this, brings us to another place. The normal Christian life, where victory and struggle and up and down is just normal. Now, many, many people, and some of you have church background, pastors will preach that this is either the story of a new Christian or maybe this was even Paul before Jesus, but it's not. This is the mature Paul speaking. He, one person writes this, In this self-portrait, Paul describes himself not as a so-called carnal Christian, but one who loves the law of God and longs to please God, but keeps trying to do it in his own strength. This is Paul's autobiography. But it's also his experience, it's the experience of everyday Christians. Anyone who seriously tried following Jesus has this as reality. So someone becomes a Christian, amazing, accepts Jesus as Savior and Lord. 
The Holy Spirit comes in and gives us the ability to obey God and love God and love others. He seals us until Jesus' return. He gives us love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness, self-control. He gives us the gifts of the Spirit, and yet we keep on struggling. Saint and sinner, hopeful and hopeless, waiting to obey, wanting to obey, and wanting to disobey. As a friend of mine said, this is truly a war of loves. He says, we know, verse 14, the law is spiritual, and I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, and what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. This is a cry of a Christian who's trying and trying and trying and messing up. And this is not, this is not saying he cannot not sin. He keeps bringing the wrong person to the fight. He keeps bringing himself to the table. Paul keeps trying to use his own strength when he knows better, and then he falls down. That's why he says in verse 17, As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I, do, for I do not do the good I want to do, and the evil I do not want to do, this is the thing I keep on doing. Anyone want to say amen? Anyone struggled with this this week? Yes. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. So I find the law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there beside me. Poof. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. I love God's law. I love God. I love everything about God. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin working within me. Look, this is like a drug addict or an alcohol addiction. The key to keeping clean is knowing that you're in recovery the rest of your life. So the same here. Truthfully, any Christian, including myself, that keeps trying to say no to sin in my own power, with my own abilities, or through discipline or willpower, will always fall. As one person said, we are all chronologically, uh, chronically addicted to sin. Long after we've been saved, our bodies crave what gives us short pleasure and long-term anguish. Paul put it like this. I love this in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. And I do not know what I want to do. Yep. And that's why Paul says in this Romans 7.24, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to rescue me from this body that's subject to death? This is an abstract, pie in the sky, ivory tower, some blogger who really doesn't have reality. He says, I'm tired of fighting myself. Wretched means I'm suffering, I'm addicted, I'm miserable. How many times have we said this in our head or out loud? I'm such a failure as a Christian. I just suck as a Christian. This is so bad. Maybe I should just give up and stop being a Christian. It's easier just to go and live a secular life or a spiritual life without church and communion and confession. Let's just get out. Let's just, let me just pretend and see if I can fake it and no one will notice. Now, how does Paul handle such a, oh my goodness, I'm so tired, so exhausted. Well, he looks beyond himself. Back to the power, the snowblower moment. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. He says, in other words, the difference maker 
is God, the Father, the Son, and of course the Spirit He gives. So, in our journey today, I don't know if you caught it, we started with being lost, and then being a justified person who struggles, then to a growing believer who still struggles, but is realizing you can never bring yourself to the knife fight because you're always going to lose. So, let me just work this out in a few different ways. Number one, this is the honest truth about the Christian life. I shared this, let me do this again. We all know that a relationship, a really good friendship, for example, or a dating relationship, or, or a marriage, begins to crumble, and even might end or die, if the expectations aren't right in the beginning or not adjusted. If I always believe A is true, and it's always going to be C, I'm going to walk away. Many, many people give up too soon in the Christian faith. They listen to lies, they walk away from Jesus and in people because they have a wrong view of a normal Christian life. They think it's going to be no suffering or they think it's going to be all all amazing. And then when real suffering and real struggle comes, the devil says you're garbage, you're nothing, and God doesn't love you, and your own heart says this isn't worth it, (coughs) and you just give up. Some, another person wrote it like this. <clears throat> there are teachers who teach. This is really important if you have church history. There are teachers who teach that this passage, Romans 7, is something a Christian only goes through once. If you come from that tradition, they'll call yourself a carnal Christian. Then they get out of it, and they move to Romans 8, and they never go back to Romans 7 ever again. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Even as mighty a man as Paul went through this again and again and again. This is a description of what every believer will go through many times in their experience because of sin, and sin is the power to deceive us and also causes us to trust in ourselves, even sometimes when we're not aware of what we're doing. The law is what will expose that evil force and drive us to the place of wretchedness that we might then in devotion to the Spirit cry out, Lord Jesus, it's your problem. You need to take it. So in other words, One of the best things to actually not walk away from the Christian faith, not give up, not fake it, not pretend, is to actually say it loud, I am struggling. And the average Christian should go, yep, and that's normal. So then, okay, that's one. Some of you just need to be free. You're not not a Christian because you sin. Uh, As I always share, people ask me all the time, they're like, John, I, I struggle with sin so much, maybe I'm not a Christian. And I just remind them, living things don't struggle. Sorry, living things struggle. Dead things don't struggle. If you're really struggling, it's a sign you're alive. Okay, so this brings another question. What is the role of the law for me as a Christian? So again, the law shows us how good and amazing and trustworthy is. The law also becomes the red line, the standard, the place of definition of what sin is and what sin is not. The law, when we are not saved, of course is hijacked and makes me sin more. So salvation, of course, is never actions or works or disciplines. It's grace. Jesus alone, grace alone, faith alone, in his work alone, his power alone. Amazing. So then the question is, well, then do I get to live a Christian life and not have to obey any of the commandments? No. Of course the role of the law exists after you get saved. Once you experience the profound love of God, you've been called by God the Father, you trust in Jesus to cover all your sin, and the Holy Spirit moves into you. Then we begin to obey the Ten Commandments as acts of love to God through Christ. And we do it in a power with the snowblower that's not our own. The power of the Holy Spirit. 
He's the one who keeps our marriage healthy and alive and growing. We choose to not murder or not commit adultery or not lie or not covet or take, not take God's name in vain or worship idols or participate in other spiritual movements or spiritualities because we love God. If you want to be more like Jesus, if you want to grow in holiness, and then this is the takeaway. Read the Ten Commandments again and again and ask for the power of the Holy Spirit now to obey them out of love. So this is incredible. Remember, our church is named Sanctus, holiness. The standard of holiness is the Ten Commandments. We obey the Ten Commandments not to get God's attention or get saved. Once we actually realize we can't do that, we're saved by Jesus, we begin to live holy lives and say no to sin because we choose to love Jesus more than our other loves, including sin. So just to work this through, some of us need to be free from the wrong expectations that there's no struggle and everything's going to be amazing. That's freedom. Others of us sort of need to realize, actually, okay, I now need to walk in the power of the Spirit. Literally say, Holy Spirit, help me not to lie this week. Holy Spirit, help me not to commit adultery this week. Holy Spirit, help me not to murder this week. Holy Spirit, help me not to covet this week. Holy Spirit, let me do this because I love Jesus and I want to love Jesus more. I want to love you more. I want to love the Father more. It's all about love. It's not about duty. It's about covenant. It's not about just sort of a contract. Did you catch it? It's not contract. It's covenant. Ah, But here's a last little thought. As you take hope, don't use this as an excuse to sin. All of us should be saying, thank God, I'm not alone. I'm a Christian loved by God. I'm still able to be used by God, even though I fall into the trap of trying to follow God by my own strength. Thank God he loves me and uses me when I'm struggling and I'm stumbling. But this is a big one. Don't use the Bible as an excuse. Yes, there's hope knowing struggle is part of the journey. But don't use it as an excuse like, well, I'm struggling and sin's not that bad and it's all good. No, no, no. (laughs) We are called to a different place, a different lifestyle, a different worldview, a different worship. So let me end this section because, by the way, next week and the week after, Romans 8, part 1 and 2, oh my goodness, incredible. What does it look like to always walk with a snowblower? That's next week. What is it actually all about? related to the power of the Spirit. But in the interim, uh, let me just pray these three prayers. And they're really important. So why don't you join me? Number one, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, would you remind people that they are still loved? That as they begin to struggle and continue to struggle, that they are loved by you and will always be loved by you. Actually, they'll never be loved more than they are at this moment. Number two, Lord, help us, help me, you can pray this, To hate sin, not just not like it, hate it, and actually help me to love Jesus more. And lastly, Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit into my life. Give me a power that's not my own to live a normal Christian life. Let me know I'm loved, teach me to hate sin, and give me power that's not my own to say yes to holiness. Lord, continue to work out a normal Christian experience in us in this church. This is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about us, please visit our website at sanctuschurch.com. There you'll find ways to support our ministry and God's vision for this church. Last but not least, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to hit that follow button to be notified when another episode releases. I hope this was encouraging for you and may God bless you. Have an amazing week.